So the readings, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Thank you for that reading, Ruth. That's the passage we're going to be considering together today. A wonderful passage, I think really key, important passage uh, as we seek uh, to follow Jesus. So if you've got your Bible there, pop it back open to Romans chapter 6 so that you can follow along. As I uh, was thinking about the first verse of Romans chapter 6, this objection that's raised, uh, I was reminded of an occasion when I was on my way to university, uh, travelling from the halls of residence uh, into the the classroom, uh, and I was on the bus, and uh, while I was on the bus, as a lad got on called Steve, uh, and I kind of knew Steve a little bit, he was on my course, I didn't know him very well, 
but Steve knew some of my friends quite well, friends from the Christian Union. Uh, and he knew I also was part of the, the Christian Union. And he came down and he sat down next to me and we got talking. Uh, and we were talking about our, our mutual friends. Uh, and as we talked about them, uh, slowly the conversation turned towards Christianity. And Steve was really taking the lead in this conversation. Steve wasn't a Christian, but he began to explain to me what he understood a Christian to be. And he talked about the gospel. And as he talked, I was really encouraged uh, how much Steve had understood. He understood that the Christian faith was not about what I can do to get to God. It's about what God has done to, to come to me. And he understood that at the heart of the Christian faith was forgiveness and grace. And I said, I was encouraged as Steve ex- explained this to me. But then he, he said he decided to reject Christianity because he had an objection to that kind of teaching. This was uh, Steve's objection. Steve told me that that kind of teaching was dangerous. I can't remember exactly uh, the words he used, but basically, if there's always grace, if you can always be forgiven, well, there's no incentive to live rightly. That was Steve's objection to the, the Christian faith. If I can always be forgiven, well, there's no incentive for me to to live rightly. And you can see there, right at the start of our passage this morning, it's exactly that objection that Paul anticipates in in verse 1. We've gone through this letter, or we're going through this letter to the Romans, aren't we? And and there are two things, I think at least, that have been very clear in this letter. The first is that we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. That's been really clear, hasn't it? Left to our own devices, we are under God's wrath. We've learned, haven't we? We've seen again for some of us that it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can be right with God. It's only because Jesus died for our sins that we can be acceptable to God. So we're not saved by anything we do. The second point became clear last week, and that is that God's grace is always greater than our sin. Paul said, didn't he, that where where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He says that the law came to increase the trespass. Through the law, we we could see our sin clearly. And more than that, the Lord provoked our rebellion. Along with Pharaoh of old, we said, who is the Lord that we should listen to him? But even as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the wonderful truth is that if you are in Christ, God's grace is always greater than your sin. Sin's past, sin's present, and sin's future. And that teaching of God's grace is heady stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Just allow that to sink in. God's grace will always be greater than your sin. And that's why Paul anticipates this objection to his teaching. Okay, if I can always be forgiven, 
If God's grace is always greater than my sin, then surely, Paul, you're encouraging people to sin. If the more I sin, the more God's grace is revealed, then why not just go on sinning? So that God's grace may be revealed more and more. You can see the objection, can't you? Very similar to my friend Steve's objection. Imagine uh, one of our young ones here has been out in Sunday school and they've been learning something from the book of Romans and they've really grasped that God's grace is greater than their, their sin. And you go outside after and a couple of them are fighting. And you say, oh, oh, knock it off, stop fighting. And they turn and say to you, it's okay, I can, I can always be forgiven. What would you, what would you say to them? <laughs> How would you answer? We've got four points as we go through this passage this morning. They're not the most exciting of headings, but I think they describe what's going on. The first point is objection raised. The second point, objection answered. The third point, answer explained. The fourth point, answer applied. So first of all, objection raised. We've seen that objection, haven't we? We've seen it. Verse 1, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin? This is more than just continuing on doing sins. This is more than just continuing on doing bad actions. This is uh, Continuing on, living under sin's rule. In sin is, is a place. Remember, we, we learned that last week. We're either in Adam, and in Adam, sin and death rule and reign. Or we're in Christ, and in Christ, grace reigns and leads to life. And Paul says, are we to continue in sin? How would you answer that objection? How would you answer the child who says he can always be forgiven? Maybe you'd be tempted to go for the, the law answer. The law answer. Well, no, no, no. God has, God has given us laws to keep. You mustn't do that. It, it's wrong. It would be a, a valid answer, isn't it? But I think it's really helpful to notice that that's not where Paul goes with his answer. He doesn't say, no, 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 don't continue in sin because of the law. Just listen to his answer in verse 2. Shall we continue in sin? By no means. It's as though Paul doesn't even need a, a split second to think about that. It's almost a reflex answer. Shall we continue in sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? That's a, a pretty short answer, isn't it? Just 14 words in my ESV. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I think this verse, verse 2, is of paramount importance when it comes to living the Christian life. It seems to me as I've looked at this verse, this passage this week, that there's something absolutely foundational here, a kind of key to living well in a world full of temptations. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
What does it mean to have died to sin? What does that mean? I think it's helpful to clear away some misunderstandings with this phrase, we have died to sin. This isn't an instruction. Paul isn't saying you must die to sin. This isn't something that we have to do as Christians. You can see that from the tense. We have died to sin. It's done. It's happened. It's not an experience you pursue later on in the Christian life. If you're in Christ, this is your reality now. And having died to sin, that doesn't mean that you are immune from sin. It doesn't mean that now you're immune from temptation or insensitive to sin. Some people do teach this. If you're, if you're really a Christian, then you just won't feel temptation anymore. You'll be immune to sin. After all, if someone's dead, they're unresponsive, aren't they? And if you're dead to sin, you won't feel its pull anymore. But that's not what Paul means when he says we have died to sin. You've died to sin. is not about being unresponsive to the pull of sin. Having died to sin means that our relationship with sin has been broken. Something fundamentally has, has changed between the believer in Christ and the power of sin. I think it's really important here that sin is singular. It's not sins. It's we've died to sin. Remember, we've seen in Romans, haven't we? Sin is pictured like a, a slave master that's held us captive. Sin is pictured like a, a king that rules. Later on in chapter 6, sin is pictured like an employer who pays wages. And sin is pictured like a, a general before whom people must present themselves. So when Paul says we've died to sin, it means that relationship has ended. It's come to an end. We're no longer under sin's rule. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer have any allegiance to sin. Maybe I can try and illustrate this. When a, a person dies... All obligations end. All obligations in life end at death, don't they? If I was to go down to the bank and I was to take out a sizable loan, it would make me sign some papers and I would commit to a certain schedule of repayments. And if I was to begin to default on those repayments, I would start to get visits from people, letters, phone calls, demanding that I pay what I owe. But if I were then to fall ill and die, all obligations, all debts, any hold that the bank had over me would have come to an end. All obligations in life end at death. And Paul says, you have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When he says that, he's not saying it's impossible for Christians to sin. We all know it is. It's more than possible. But it's imp impossible for someone who is in Christ to live under the rule of sin because that relationship has, has come to an end. 
It's broken, it's done. So that's why emphatically you can say in verse 14, sin will no longer have dominion over you. You've died to sin. That's a short answer, objection answered. Shall we go and sin? No, you have died to sin. He then goes to explain this answer. And this is really the, the bulk of the passage, verses 3 to 11. So all this talk of having died to sin, if you're a Christian, that's, that's true of you. Whether you feel it or not, you have died to sin. All, all this talk may sound strange. When did that happen? When did I die to sin? Well, Paul goes on to explain. That happened when we were united with Christ. It might not feel like we have died to sin. We might look at our experience and see, I still continue to struggle with this sin or that sin. How can it be that I've died to sin? But Paul wants us to see that when we are united to Jesus, when we put our trust in him, what is his becomes ours. He does this with the illustration of baptism. Verses 3 and 4. Baptism is, a, is an illustration of our, our union, our joining with Jesus. Baptism doesn't make people Christians, does it? But it is a picture of, of that whole conversion experience. And Paul uses it as an illustration. As he writes to the church in Rome, he presumes that every member of the church is baptized. And so he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Do you not know this, he says? It's, it's possible to be a Christian and not to know exactly what's happened to you. When a baby is born, it goes through the experience of the birth, comes out kicking and screaming. It doesn't actually know, it doesn't actually, it can't explain to you what's happened. It's only later on as it learns what happened, then it can, it can explain it. And Paul says, do you not know, you Christians, do you not know what's happened to you? When you were baptized into Christ, when you were joined to him by faith, you were baptized into his, his death. His death became your death. So the moment a person trusts Jesus, it's as though a funeral takes place. A baptism service is a bit like a funeral service. It's the end of an old life. An old life lived apart from Christ. An old life lived under the rule of sin. An old life that's heading to death. That whole life comes to an end when a person is united to Christ. That life in Adam, finished, done. There's no going back. It says again, verse 6, we know that our old self, that's all that I was before I came to Christ, was crucified with him. So you can see this isn't something that we have to do. This is something that has, has happened if we put our trust in Jesus. Over 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus Christ died for sins. He died two sins. And when we're joined to him by faith, we die. What is his becomes ours. 
And baptism is a very vivid picture of that, isn't it? You know, you go down, down, down into the waters of death. And then you come up, up, up to new life. And so Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The end of an old life, the beginning of a whole new reality. Sometimes in Romans 6, there's a teaching that kind of paints the picture that the Christian is, is like two people. An old person and a, and a new person. And there's this great battle going on between these two people. I don't think that kind of teaching is, is quite right. An old life has ended. Yes, we st- still feel the, the pull of sin. We still... Uh, feel sin within but an old life has come to an end there's no going back and a new life has certainly begun and Paul says for if we have been united with him in a death like his we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his so we've got to grasp it this morning when we trust Jesus We are united to him in his death and resurrection. That means we have died to sin. And how can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? Second point we must grasp in this explanation is that be united to Christ, we are free from sin. We are free from sin. Again, notice Paul is addressing our minds here. He says, do you not know? And then he says, we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. By this term, body of sin, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Paul means all that we are, not just our our bodies, hands, arms, legs, faces, but all that we are, minds, will, emotions. He says that that body, that you that was ruled by sin has been brought to nothing. We may continue to be tempted. We do still sin. But what Paul is saying is in Christ, our whole body, our whole being has now become infertile soil for sin. We're now planted firmly in God's, God's grace. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, let me try to illustrate. Uh, these are maybe a little bit abstract uh, concepts. This illustration may, it may not help, I don't know. But imagine uh, I've committed a crime. I've got 10 years punishment, 10 years in jail. I'm locked up. After five years, I decide I've had enough. And I sneak out over the, the prison wall and escape. A few days after, the, the police catch up with me. They drag me back to prison. They tell me I've got to go back. I've got five more years uh, to do. That's a picture of someone trying to escape the power of sin without Christ. 
Sin continues to have a claim on the person who doesn't belong to Jesus. There's no escape. But imagine a different scenario. I'm in the prison. I've got the 10 years. I serve the 10 years. The 10 years is up. And I, I walk out the front gates of the prison and I go about my, my life. Then imagine the police, policeman catches up with me. <laughs> and says, hey, you belong in the prison. Get back to prison. I don't have to go back, do I? The sentence has been passed. The punishment has been paid. And I'm now free. The policeman can make all the threats he likes. But he has no claim on me. And we are free in Christ because the punishment has been paid. Christ died to sin. The death he died was the the punishment, our punishment. All that old life is brought to an end, punished and laid in the grave. And so now sin has no claim on the Christian. No power over the Christian. We are entirely free. See, sometimes in the battle against sin, it can feel like sin has power over us. It can feel like we will never escape. But the reality is, not just the gospel gives us pardon for sin. The work of Christ on the cross breaks the power of sin. Today is Palm Sunday, isn't it? Uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, knowing all that will await him. He'll be handed over. He'll be mocked, scourged, crucified. Three days later, he will rise again. The death of Jesus is a fact of history, as is his resurrection. But it's not only a fact of history. It's, a, it's the power of the believer in the present to live in a sinful world. John Wesley writes, doesn't he? He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Let me ask you a question this morning. Will sin and death ever rule over Jesus Christ? No. It's an obvious question, isn't it? Sin and death can never rule over Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 9, Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, Christ died to sin once and for all, and now he lives to God. Listen, if you're in Christ, sin and death can no more rule over you than they can over the Lord Jesus Christ. Death can no more take hold of you than it can drag Jesus Christ off his throne and put him back in the grave. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's an amazing truth. None of us have grasped the fullness of this truth. My prayer for myself and for us as a church is that we would grasp more and more of exactly what Jesus has achieved for us in his death and resurrection. 
a man called John Owen was a pastor in the 17th century. And he said, in his opinion, there are two great pastoral problems. One is convincing those who are outside of Christ, convincing unbelievers that they are under the rule of sin. People who don't belong to Jesus go about their lives and they they have no idea that they're absolutely enslaved to sin's power. Here's a second problem that John Owen said was his great pastoral problem. It's convincing the Christian, the one who belongs to Jesus, that they are no longer under the power of sin. So I said before that the battle with sin can sometimes seem so fierce. It can sometimes seem so hard and long. But the reality is in Christ we are free from sin. And Paul wants us to know that. Three times he says, we know, we know. Do you not know? Well, how we think about ourselves as Christians is is so important. That we think about ourselves rightly in light of what Jesus has done. And that's so why he says there in verse 11, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, he's not asking you to kind of engage in some kind of make-believe. He's telling you based on the reality of what Jesus has done to consider yourselves what you are. You are free from sin and you are alive to God. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? You're no longer under sin, but under grace. The whole of your body is now no longer a fertile field for the reign of sin, but for the reign of God's grace. That gives us hope, doesn't it? That gives us great hope. We sang about it earlier, when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. That gives us hope that we can change slowly, but surely over time. God is doing his work of grace. There's a lot packed into these verses. I would encourage you, as I'm going to do over the coming weeks, to just sink down into Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. Take time to meditate on the truth of these verses and call out to the Lord that he would help you to see all that he has done. So that's the answer explained. And now, finally, the answer applied. The answer applied, verses 12 to 14. We now get to the very first words of instruction in the whole letter. Got six chapters and Paul hasn't told us once to do anything. Just explain the gospel. And now he begins to instruct the Christian Are you ready for this first instruction? Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Can you see how this is the obvious fruit of all that Paul has been teaching? You're no longer slaves to sin. You're free from sin. Its power is broken. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. And as he unpacks that, he gives a kind of positive 
and a negative, a positive and a negative of what it looks like in our lives. First of all, the negative. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I said earlier, the picture here is of a soldier presenting themselves and all their skills and all their weapons before a general to serve. Paul says, don't present your members to sin. Don't put yourself at the disposal of general sin. Okay, when Paul writes about our members, he's not just writing about our physical bodies, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our mouths. He's talking about all that we are. Our wills, our emotions, our desires, our goals, our dreams, our abilities, our imaginations, our ambitions, our energies. All that we are. Paul says, do not present yourself to sin. You owe sin nothing. You are dead to sin. That relationship has come to an end. That illustration that Victoria used earlier was a great one, wasn't it? The eagle tethered to the post, day after day, walking round the post, unable to do anything else. And Paul is saying to us, the rope has been cut. You're free to fly. Don't keep, don't keep walking around the, the post. But we mustn't only do the negative instruction. We must also do the, the positive instruction as well. If all we do is try to do the negative, we'll find it impossible. We must do the positive as well. So Paul says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a new master. The Lord is your master. He's your general. He's your king. He's your, your boss. And so Paul urges us to present ourselves for service, to do our, to do our joyful duty. He's going to go on to spell out what this means later on when in, verse tw- in chapter 12 he says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And chapter 12 onwards shows us exactly what it means to present our members to the Lord. But for now, I just want us to remember that every morning that we wake, we have a choice to make. Who, who will we serve? Who will we serve? Who will we present ourselves before? Let's make uh, this song our prayer. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use 
every power as thou shalt choose. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do each day, each moment, to present ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And by his grace and power and his Holy Spirit, God will slowly but surely transform us. Again, I just want to encourage you in the coming weeks just to spend some time in Romans 6, considering the broken power of sin and considering who you are in Jesus. We're going to sing a couple of songs together that are just going to try and help embed in our hearts and minds some of the truths from these verses. The first song is Before the Throne of God Above and then the Christian's Daily Prayer.